0: SCP 6624 Il Maestro del Rancore During an episode of the sitcom Seinfeld, Jerry tells George that the German composer Robert Schumann went crazy because he couldn't get the sound of a single note out of his head and kept repeating it over and over. While this isn't entirely accurate, it is true that art can so very often lead to obsessions, whether through the creation of it, Or the consumption. The SCP universe contains a fair number of anomalies based around music in particular, with more than a handful simply being anomalous pieces of music that, when played, cause very abnormal things to happen to those listening. The anomaly at the core of SCP 6624 isn't really that different, but what makes it more unique is the details surrounding its creation and its purpose. Let's dive in. SCP-6624 is an apparatus capable of producing vocal music possessing distinct anomalous attributes related to its composition. It incorporates 124 preserved human bodies, a system of bronze pipes and bellows crafted from the stomach and lungs of a large whale. It's controlled via twelve attached keyboards, as well as a number of levers, pulleys, and pedals. It's therefore speculated that the device, in its current state, is unplayable by normal humans. The bellows are manipulated through the rhythmic pulling of three bronze chains, delivering air to the human components via the system of pipes, which are altered by the use of six levers which cause them to expand or restrict airflow to varying degrees. Underneath each keyboard are four pedals, for a total of 48, which are used to control which human components are receiving air, and each keyboard has 88 keys, which are used to modify the mouth, tongue, throat, and larynx of the human components. The human components inside were initially recorded as deceased but EEG scans have revealed the continued presence of brain activity. After further examination, it was concluded that the humans inside are self-aware and suffer considerable distress. It remains unclear how this was achieved, but it likely involved the unidentified chemical agent responsible for their preservation. Operating the device also causes steam to release from vents hidden throughout the surrounding town along with the steady sound of moving gears, implying that steam power and cogwork are involved in its function, but the unusual acoustics of the chamber containing it has made it difficult to track their source. Further information would require dissection and disassembly, but since this could damage or even destroy the device, this has been prohibited the apparatus was discovered beneath the castle of Gesualdo at Gesualdo, Italy, a structure dating back to the 7th century. In 1953, a talented but little-known 27-year-old singer from Venice named Isabella Colasanti was violently kidnapped during a recital in Gesualdo by a group of masked assailants dressed in unusual, seemingly ceremonial garb. It's currently hypothesized that her invitation to perform in Gesualdo was extended by the kidnappers themselves. Survivors of the attack report that the perpetrators appeared on stage in a cloud of black smoke, and many admitted that they did not immediately react, as they believed that this was part of the performance. The attackers rendered Isabella unconscious and terminated those who attempted to intervene. A professional photographer hired for the event managed to snap a photo of the masked figures during their escape with Isabella's body. The incident resulted in a total of 34 casualties, as well as 12 fatalities, including the photographer, with all victims dying from stab wounds or strangulation via some manner of garrote. Local law enforcement proved ineffective in solving the case, with this initially chalked up to incompetence although it was later discovered that they were in fact in league with the assailants. Families of the victims grew frustrated with the lack of progress, so they brought their complaints to the state, which quickly responded by sending a team of investigators from Rome. Investigator Armando Francesco took over the case, quickly discovering the corroboration between the assailants and the local police. It was found that the police had overseen the destruction of physical evidence, including the deliberate cremation of bodies without providing autopsies, and the unlawful execution of communist partisans, three young men who were framed for the massacre. The investigation also ultimately uncovered a secret society operating in Gesualdo known as La Mascherata, or the Masquerade. The group in Cesualdo was found to include a disproportionate number of artists, writers, and musicians, along with several town officials and senior members of the police force. Interrogation of the lowest ranked members directed detectives to a cistern from the roman era located beneath the castle, a location otherwise unknown to the general public. Discovered within was scp 6624 along with a number of cult-related artifacts and documents, as well as the body of Isabella, which had been partially treated with an unknown chemical compound. Evidence indicates that she was incapacitated, originally recorded as killed, at 10.40pm on December 30th, 1953, as part of a ritual designed to coincide with the zenith of Aldebaran an orange giant star located about 65 light years from our sun. The foundation had an agent embedded within the investigation who reported all of this, and operatives disguised as members of the italian armed forces proceeded to seize control of the town and amnesticize the population. Most members of la mascherata self-terminated when cornered, while those who were successfully captured chose to bite off and swallow their own tongues. Eight anomalous entities, resembling those involved in the kidnapping, were discovered in an immobile, possibly inactive state. Their bodies were analyzed and found to be genetically normal humans, although their masks, resembling porcelain but more akin to chitin, have been fused to their faces via a viscous black substance. Efforts to test this substance have failed. Due to its rapid evaporation when removed from its host, and x-ray imaging suggests that it has consumed much of the skull, including the entire brain. The entities are technically alive, but they neither speak nor move, nor do they require any sustenance. Letters between cultists indicate substantial influence over European political, cultural, and religious authorities. The letters also contain references to 6624, which they refer to as il coro, or the choir, noting that it cannot be played until the arrival of il maestro del rancore, the maestro of rancor, a prophesized entity of apparent importance. The surviving members of the cult were found to be low-level and ignorant, ultimately serving the interests of an unidentified inner circle whose true motivations remain unclear. Also among the documents recovered were seven abnormally complex musical compositions, and a journal belonging to nobleman and composer Carlo Gesualdo. We're given a brief biography on Gesualdo, who was born in 1566 and died in 1613, and lived as the prince of Venosa and count of Conza. In 1586, he married his first cousin, but caught her having an affair with the duke four years later, and immediately murdered both of them. He then had their bodies, nude and mutilated, dragged outside onto the street for all to see. As he was a noble, he was not found criminally liable for the killings. Later in 1594 and 1595, Gesualdo lived in Ferrara regarded as one of the primary musical centers in Italy. Here he would engage in a great deal of composing, and upon his return to his castle at Gesualdo, he used his wealth to transform his estate into a similar center of music making, filling his court with singers and instrumentalists. He eventually died in isolation under mysterious circumstances in 1613, raising speculation that he had been murdered. Now of course, that's all just the dry, mundane history that most people are aware of, but the journal found in the hands of the cultists showcases a far more interesting history. The journal text has been translated from 16th century Italian and modernized, and I'll be reading them all verbatim. October 28th, 1590. Alberigi spoke to me of regret such audacity. I am no murderer, for honor dictates my actions, and they were dead the moment they betrayed me. What followed, be it doom or destiny, was set in stone by God himself. To them I owe naught but contempt. Yes, I am unwell, but it is not remorse I suffer. Something changed in me that day something elemental to my being. In my surrender to the wondrous fury of rage, it was as if the gate to my soul was torn from its hinges and a stranger entered uninvited. But such cannot be, for my soul is protected by the Lord's unyielding bulwark. Truly the mind is an imaginative thing when left to its own devices. Regardless, I sought an opinion outside my own, and my physician has diagnosed me as choleric, concluding that I merely suffer the symptoms associated with an overproduction of yellow bile. Long have I been blighted by an excess of black bile, but rather than bring balance to my wretched humors, the two instead share a morbid alliance, becoming, as if through alchemy, an affliction greater than the sum of their parts. I know little of medicine or its application, but I trust Calandri. God may hold my soul, but my health is in the good doctor's hands. He urges me to transcribe my thoughts and emotions so as to track my journey to physical harmony. November 6th, 1590 Last night I dreamed of a strange city raised from a sea as black as forgotten memories. A realm where ebony stars burned dark across miasmal skies, and red liquid, neither blood nor wine, flowed up and down from alabaster edifices. Its architecture displayed the ungodly hubris of Babylon, both in scale and through its defiance of natural law, a maddening show of mathematical impossibility, these were the only universal constants of that mercurial metropolis, whose labyrinthine structure shifted from the splendors of the ancients to places only glimpsed in fever delusion. Did this city, whose baleful towers and impossible geometry, seek to make itself familiar? Or was it an illusion of my own mind's creation, protecting me from the inconceivability of its nature? much as angels are wont to do. When I awoke, there lingered a most peculiar song. Before I had the chance to appreciate it, the fleeting harmony disappeared. Only dread remained. November 13th, 1590. I awaken, drenched in a cold sweat with shivering hands I endeavour to elucidate this night-born terror. Though ensnared by the throes of fever and fatigue, I recollect the experience with harrowing clarity. Verily, I found myself unable to distinguish the phantasmagorical from mundane, as if the dream was more real than the waking world. I was within my own grand hall, yet found it full of unfamiliar people. Though they hid their faces with masks, I knew they had no place among my lonely court. I observed their profane behavior and satiric displays with disgust and, to my shame, a degree of grotesque fascination. And within the center of that blasphemous orgy, engaging in the most unspeakable of acts— is a woman. Her mask. Dear God, her mask. She mocks me still, that queen of whores. Even in death does she humiliate me. Her orifices overflowed with the seed of a hundred thousand devils, and when her body could not accommodate more, she tore open her own flesh to sate their debauched demands. Despite her self-destruction, she moaned with an ecstasy I have never known. I cannot write more, for this visage of hell grew ever darker, revealing satiric perversions beyond the ken of mortals. The crowd turned to face me, cackling with focused, derisive laughter. I've been made a cuckold, again and again— Their ridicule tore the flesh from my bones, exposing my soul to a maelstrom of emotions. I called for help, but the mob was upon me. As I braced for defilement, I was roused from sleep by Alberigi, who had heard my anguished cries in the night. I wish never to sleep again, but Calandri forbids it. He now feeds me bitter tinctures and herbs from the Orient before I sojourn for bed. He assures me that they will give me the strength to endure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, deliver me from this evil. Amen. November twenty-fifth, 1590 Despite Calandry's medicine— The nightmares have grown increasingly prevalent, and ever more grotesque. It so often begins the same, as I descend those ancient stone steps, my body ignoring my own mind's protest. I enter the Grand Hall, always to find the Masquerade, black and white, red and yellow. Calandry speaks frequently of these colors, and has shown me how often they appear in nature and miracles, from the four humors to the magnum opus of alchemical pursuit. Though ignorant of the natural sciences, I listened to his musings utterly entranced. Black. White. Yellow. Red. Black. White. Yellow. Red. Here's what I remember. Negredo. The magnum opus begins with putrefaction. Heat is used to accelerate the process, until all materials are black. This is the stage of chaos. Albedo. The materials must be cleansed of impurities. Xantosis. This is where he lost me, and he understood this, telling me that this is where most alchemists fail. The materials must undergo transmutation, but the process requires the drawing out of inner light, the undying spark of the divine found within all God's children. But how does man unleash this light, without losing his soul? Might it be stolen from another? Rubedo. The end. Everything ends in red. He spoke to me of blood, but his voice grew distant and droning, as if my head was submerged in water. No longer listening, my attention was drawn to the far end of my bedchamber, where a jester dressed in many colors danced and capered. I watched, mesmerized by his merrymaking, as Calandry continued to vomit noise— The jester removed his bell-adorned hat and reached inside, pulling out a length of rope. I continued to watch, my eyes wide and unblinking, as he knotted the rope into a noose. My voice was stolen, my body paralyzed. I could not close my eyes. I could not even look away. The jester placed the noose around his neck and tied the other end to my bedpost. He removed a dagger from his belt and raised it in the air, before plunging the blade deep within his abdomen. Slowly, gently, he disemboweled himself. When the last of his organs spilled upon the floor, the jester bowed with a flourish and hurled himself through my window. I screamed and jumped from my bed. By the time I reached the window, there was no sign of the fool. The nightmare is no longer bound to sleep alone, God help me. Calandry fears that my affliction may be beyond his help. Might these horrors be demonic in origin? I will send a request to the Bishop of Avellino at dawn, for I now have little doubt that something wicked haunts my castle—an evil which seeks dominion over my very soul. December 3rd, 1590 I received a curious letter today, a reply to a missive I have no recollection of ever sending. The script is strange, shifting between recognizable words and utterly foreign symbols. I could not look upon it long, and asked Alberigi if he would attempt to read it. He tells me that it is written in plain Italian, and that it contained nothing strange or remarkable, save its exquisite calligraphy and general penmanship. The letter was from the Ambassador of Alagada, a faraway kingdom I had never before heard of. The Ambassador was evidently thanking me for my invitation, informing me that he would arrive no sooner or later than the thirtieth of this month. This news filled me with an inexplicable dread, well beyond my usual unsociable reflex. Albarighi assured me that I sent the invitation in October. Why does memory fail me? December 10th, 1590. The masked fiends are everywhere, stalking me in the night and escaping into the mirrors. My courtiers tell me that it is all just a trick of the mind. No longer am I able to discern reality from fantasy— To be safe, I have shattered every looking-glass in my estate. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning, it is now, and ever shall be, a world without end. Amen. December sixteenth, 1590 Today I received a missive from the Bishop of Avellino. The bishop proves sympathetic and vows to send a number of his finest prelates to investigate my estate. An ember of hope now burns against the darkness. I will try to take comfort in its light, however faint its flame. I've not forgotten that other letter—a reply to an invitation never sent. The faded day draws nigh as fear coils around my heart. It is content to feast slowly savouring my suffering as it devours its way to my soul. December 18th, 1590 My world vibrates with the most cacophonous of music. The servants claim they hear nothing, but even the wine trembles within my cup. The noise grows ever louder, ever deeper, with the progression of the day. Blood flows from my ears and I feel as though my bones have begun to fracture. Perhaps it is a blessing disguised as a curse, for it helps rebuff the cruel embrace of sleep. I cannot face those dreams again. They fill my soul with ungodly urges and a singular self-destructive instinct. Oh, how I long for the sweet release of death. God have mercy. Where are the priests... I call on every saint and every angel, deliver me from madness. December 23rd, 1590 The prelates arrived at noon. Having thoroughly inspected my estate, they determined the presence of something unholy. Their leader informed me that my suffering was not merely the work of spirits or minor devils, but showed signs of Satan's direct interference, and that I was undoubtedly targeted for my years of piety. As I write this, they consecrate my halls with holy water, and replace that abhorrent cacophony with the hollowed sound of chimes and prayer. Tonight, they intend to exercise the evil for my body. By the grace of God, I will be saved. December 25th. 1590. On this holy day, I am saved. Though their work was arduous, they restrained my body and expelled Satan through the righteous mortification of the flesh. I see little reason to continue this journal. My grace renewed. I can return to the joy of my music. Curious still is the letter from Alagada, I assumed it was another delusion, yet here it resides atop my writing desk. Though I try to ignore it, my gaze repeatedly gravitates to its peculiar seal. I dare not read it again, for its very existence is an obstacle to my recovery. I vow to burn it tonight. December 26th, 1590. THIS CANNOT BE POSSIBLE. IT TURNED TO ASH BEFORE MY EYES, YET HERE IT IS, RETURNED TO MY DESK, UNDAMAGED, PRISTINE. I FEAR WHAT THIS DAY SHALL BRING. DECEMBER 29, 1590 THE CHURCH HAS FAILED. God has abandoned me. Hope, it seems, was always an illusion. No longer can I trust the members of my court. They conspire against me in some unknowable but nonetheless nefarious plot. I am, and have always been, completely alone. Though I do not sleep, the nightmare remains. It engulfs my estate, infecting all with its delirium. Darkness gathers at the windows, blinding me from the world outside. The walls bulge and crack, bleeding black oil strewn with entrails and drowned rats. The halls contort, perverting any distinction between up and down. My ancestors writhe within the frames of their portraits, and in unison shriek laments. I seek to escape, but find egress barred by forces beyond my strength. I was too weak. I have always been too weak. The power destroyed me, purged me of agency, and lit my path with false hope and foolish faith. I cannot fight this any longer, and welcome obliteration. The faded day is here. December 30th, 1590. Impossible music reverberates from below. Alberigi stands at my doorway, his face erased by a porcelain disguise. His movement and poise resemble that of a marionette. I fear a stranger now moves his bones. His voice is wrong. I know in my heart that this man has no soul. He informs me that the ambassador has arrived. God have mercy. January 12th, 1591. I was a fool to dread their arrival. My suffering was not without purpose, for what I endured was merely the birthing pangs of an awakened soul. Initiated into the secret rites of Alagada, I have become one of a chosen few. To my initial surprise, Calandry was among them. Though unrecognizable in his disguise, he approached me openly and eased my concerns with his calming familiarity. He gave me a mask and told me to wear it, citing the customs of Alagada. I now understand his part in my awakening. He is to become my mentor, guiding me to the truth as Virgil did Dante through the bowels of hell. The ambassador entered my court with unrivaled splendor, an entourage of tumblers and jugglers, bards and balladeers following in his wake. He bestowed a gracious bow and introduced himself by title, never divulging his true name throughout the entirety of his stay. Dusk-colored silk was wrapped around his entire body from his curiously heel-centric chopin to his pointed hood, the fabric bound taut like the bandages of long-dead Egyptian kings. It was an unexpectedly drab attire compared to the luxurious garb of his attendants, with their alabaster masks, ruby-encrusted golden jewelry, and ink-dyed doublets and pantaloons. We discussed a multitude of subjects, exploring the hidden depths of art, music, and philosophy. Though much was beyond my comprehension, I listened with fascination and savoured every forbidden word. He finally spoke of the Hanged King, his mystery and supreme power. I remember his visit as one remembers a lingering dream. When he was gone, he left something of himself with me, and I gave him something in return. I do not recollect the exact nature of our bargain, but it doesn't matter. I would have surrendered anything for this. He has marked me with their sign. The tears that stain this page are testament to his glory, for he has carved the musica universalis upon my soul. I must find the voices and show mankind the true harmony of the spheres. February 7th, 1591 Oh, ignorance. I see now, through the eyes of true lucidity, the deception of your bliss. What we call reality is nothing more than a tightly controlled performance. Life was one of anguish and pain, suffocated beneath the unnumbered falsehoods of this world. But no longer will I suffer the church and its lies, their poison fed to me since infancy. I hear the music with such clarity now. It is the only truth I require. February 24th, 1591 Though I have always known him to be intelligent, Calandry proves more learned than ever suspected. My lessons have begun with forbidden astrology, cosmic secrets long suppressed by the Church Oh, how they fear the stars, their dread portents, and infinite incomprehensibility. We spend these nights operating strange tools composed of bronze and polished glass, optical instruments that Calandria assures will be common in the years to come. Through this apparatus we search for the doomed worlds and chart the flourishing of the void. He speaks often of Alagada. The Sleeping City, whose black stars scream their secrets for all eternity. Our Brotherhood is one of many. Our Sovereign a King whom even Emperors have humbly served. April 6th, 1591 Calandry proves a masterful tutor, and I've learned my lessons well. His grimoires are incalculably old their pages bound by iron locks and shackles. Today I asked my teacher about Lofty Alagada, and of whence it was raised. He told me that the sleeping city predates all creation, its high fanes already ancient, when the gods were not yet more than a dream. May 15th, 1591 I have completed the first composition of what is to be my magnum opus. In my excitement, I summoned the greatest singers of my domain. The anticipation is almost more than I can endure. May 17th, 1591 All have failed me. Did these fools seek to mock me, or were they always this incapable? They protested against my demands, claimed that my instructions were indecipherable, that what I desired was simply impossible. I had them tortured for their lack of talent, and lo, from their anguished cries I produced the sweetest melody. From the wheeze of a punctured lung to the death-rattle of the disemboweled, the words AND NOTES FLOWED FROM THEIR BROKEN BODIES UNTIL THERE WAS NOTHING LEFT OF THEM TO TAKE. THE MUSIC. THE ecstasy. MAN, WOMAN, OR CHILD. IT MATTERED NOT, AS I exalted IN THEIR DESTRUCTION. IN THE END, I WAS BREATHLESS, COVERED IN BLOOD AND BILE. OH, WHAT A GRAND AND INTOXICATING SYMPHONY. I never meant to hurt them, but they had sinned against the universe itself. Were these thoughts truly mine? I felt the ambassador at my side, caressing the darkness within me. There is another. Such hatred—an odium so great it reaches the sun. June 20th, 1591 I was lost, but Calandry found me and returned me to the fold. I surrendered to foolishness, born from a disease of guilt. Through violence he has cured me. Guilt, mercy, compassion, each a tether on my soul from which I must be torn. Suffering is necessary. What I intend to create will be worth every sacrifice. I must not question what our king intends. Even Judas had his role to play. The music grows within me like a deflowered womb. But the wombs of flesh spawn such ugly things, such polluted vermin. But I will birth a god. My pain has purpose. June 25th, 1591 The ambassador visits me in my dreams. He has promised me a patron, one who has watched me with great curiosity. I continue to be haunted by visions and other phantasms. I had no idea that the veil hid such monstrous things. Clantry explains that I am a witness, one who has gazed upon the truth of our reality. There is a strange beauty to these horrors, and I cannot look away. The world must see as we do. It would be good to tear this veil to shreds. The music becomes me. When I cut the flesh, I bleed the words. Like a war song, it cultivates rage. My soul burns with such fury. This is what it is to be alive. Alas, I am surrounded by dreamless, shuffling corpses. The world festers with so many unnecessary people. They are but tinder for my pyre. August 4th, 1591 I was seated at my throne when he entered. Locust swarms and fetid miasma followed in his wake, gracing my courtroom with his divine pestilence. I knew him by his mask, the seething Prince, Lord of the Yellow Court. He offered me his patronage, and I gladly accepted. Though I recoiled from his tainted touch, it filled my mind with such wondrously perverse designs. Yes, I see it now—an infernal machine of flesh and bronze, a composition in the language of the cosmos. No more words. The human tongue and Script are worthless to me now, I am beyond them. The stars sing of my ascension, and I will burn as bright as one. I will burn away the impurities. I will burn away the foul substance of creation." So, the Ambassador of Alagada and the Yellow Lord began influencing Gesualdo to create this anomalous musical instrument and some pieces of music that could be played on it. The exact goal of this interaction is rather unclear, but the hanged king was mentioned, so it's possibly something to do with him. For a refresher, Alagada is a paranormal location akin to a dream state, populated by people and creatures that live in perpetual ecstasy and masquerade. It's ruled by the four lords, yellow, red, white, and black, as well as the ambassador of Alagada, an extremely powerful reality bender. On the throne, however, is the hanged king, a tragic, enigmatic, and monstrous figure who is now restrained. And thus it's not really known how much influence he currently has, with the ambassador acting in his name. Very curiously, the ritual involving the singer Isabella Colasanti was designed to coincide with the zenith of the star Aldebaran. Aldebaran in turn is connected with the Cthulhu mythos entity, Haster who is also referred to as the king in yellow, and was a strong inspiration for scp-701 and the hanged king. The anomalous musical compositions created by Gesualdo required the use of an entirely new musical notation system due to their complexity, either invented by him or adopted from some unidentified source. They don't contain written lyrics, but the musical device itself creates sounds resembling words, albeit not ones coinciding with any known language. Foundation researchers attempted to play the pieces on the device utilizing multiple players, but it was ultimately determined that the speed and coordination involved would be beyond any human capabilities. The lead researcher instead then began developing a mechanical device capable of playing it, dubbed the automatic corpoliope a portmanteau of corpus, meaning body, and a calliope, a musical instrument. This was completed in 1985 and finally allowed the foundation to test the extent of 6624's anomalous capabilities. The experiments were conducted on d-class personnel in a soundproof chamber. We're given a testing log of seven of the compositions. The first, titled in English as Anguish in Exile, caused the d-class to develop depressive psychosis, ultimately progressing to catatonia. They came to regard themselves as deposed nobility, the delusion growing more elaborate until they are rendered catatonic, between two to five days after exposure. Following catatonia, their body will begin to calcify, causing their lips to grossly contort into a frown and their whole body to take on a doll-like appearance. They remained self-aware throughout this process, perpetually weeping to the point of dehydration. The foundation kept the subjects alive for a year via forced feeding and intravenous hydration, but they were eventually terminated after nothing changed. The second, titled as gospel of rage, caused listeners to show signs of growing agitation and aggression, eventually becoming violent while showcasing supernatural strength and or pain tolerance. They will initially attempt to attack non-afflicted humans before ultimately turning on each other. The last remaining subject will then undergo spontaneous human combustion, converting their body to yellow ash. The first time they tested this, the d-class managed to breach the research station, exposing two researchers to the song, and ultimately resulting in 25 casualties and 7 fatalities. The third composition, titled, oh the ecstasy of agony, triggers self-destructive behavior in listeners, compelling them to repeatedly injure themselves while in an apparent state of manic euphoria. This can include the forced removal of eyes, tongues, and genitals, broken bones, disembowelment, and even the complete removal of the epidermis. As long as the music continues, subjects will not appear hindered by their injuries, but as soon as it stops, they will immediately experience pain, loss of consciousness, or death. Those that survive claim it to be the most beautiful song they've ever heard, and they're able to remember it perfectly. As a result, they will attempt to constantly replicate the song using their own voices, or through tapping, eventually causing them to stop responding to communication, incapable of focusing on anything other than the song. The fourth is titled Black Stars Among the Yellow Twilight, and it produces a spatial illusion within the containment chamber, observable to both listeners and non-listeners, likely triggered by the Vibrations coming from 6624. The illusion resembles a yellow sky with black celestial bodies radiating darkness. Observers report conflicting feelings, including wondrous dread and familiar inconceivability. The illusion disappears once the song finishes. The lead researcher stated that. He doesn't believe the feelings invoked by the song or the allusion to be anomalous, as good art is capable of inspiring a plethora of emotions. The fifth piece is titled, Chaos Adored, Wearing naught but joy and madness. Listeners exposed to it will vanish during its duration, returning upon completion. They show no signs of physical injury but display symptoms of dementia and extreme post-traumatic stress. Interviews with subjects suggest that they perceived time at a decelerated rate wherever they were, but they are either unable or unwilling to divulge details about their experience. Afterwards, they will mostly only speak to themselves and what they say is generally incoherent. They would go on to display acute hypnophobia, or fear of sleep, and eventually die after months without sleeping. The sixth composition is the sorrows of a tortured king, which causes the manifestation of porcelain-faced entities wearing the garb of 16th century Italian actors, along with period-appropriate props. They will begin a performance and will invite listeners to their makeshift stage. Subjects display unexplained awareness of the script and their role, immediately acting out their part. The manifestations disappear once the song finishes, and subjects display no memory of their performance. One to three days afterwards, however, they begin to display behavior indicative of hypergraphia, an intense desire to write or draw. In this case, it's specifically the writing of plays, with the plays they write being often incoherent in plot and structure, but bear a passing resemblance to SCP-701, the Hanged King's tragedy. Finally, the seventh composition is titled, My Blackened Heart, How Sweet Its Decay. This one triggers various forms of degeneration within listeners bodies, including opening holes and empty cavities. This serves to amplify the noises made by the body, while causing the listener extreme pain as their heartbeats begin to reverberate like a drum from within. They then must keep moving and producing noise, otherwise they dissolve into a viscous substance leaving behind only a blackened heart, which continues to beat to the rhythm of the song. Listeners display extreme duress, frequently screaming and weeping until their bodies are no longer able to move, resulting in immediate deterioration. The locations where each test subject dissolved had developed a unique species of fungus not found elsewhere in baseline reality. And as of 2019, all the remaining hearts continue to pulsate and do not appear to experience decay. During an unrelated 1997 investigation of the Vatican's secret archives, foundation operatives recovered evidence of an otherwise forgotten conspiracy to cover up a major incident in the province of Avellino. SCP-6624 wasn't mentioned, but letters between members of the college of cardinals show frequent, albeit vague references regarding Carlo Gesualdo and his eccentricities. They also found a number of the composer's belongings seized from his estate, including an untitled document and five more compositions, displaying a level of complexity considered beyond human recitation. The compositions are titled Torn from the Spires of Sacrifice, My Ossuary Runneth Over, Drawn from the Fever Dreams of Infants, and The March of the Pigs, which aren't that different than most death metal titles. Further investigation led to the discovery of a church-sponsored military effort to purge Avellino of anomalous activity in the year 1613 led by the unseen order of St. Jude, an order of Christian knights that served the pope directly and were trained for the elimination of anomalies, then perceived as demons and witchcraft. The untitled document written by Gesualdo, reads, The moment of truth is upon us, and warrants this final record. Let it serve as a testament to who I was. For over twenty years I have faithfully served, and my invention nears completion. I am in contact with our allies in the shadows, who provide me with only the finest materials, while Calandry continues to perfect the preservative agent, creating a facsimile of the Philosopher's Stone. The machine must be eternal, for my prince has told me so. He sees what mortals cannot— One piece moves the other, and I will not live to see its fruition. Let the choir sing my apocalypse. When the maestro of rancor comes, even the dead will hear. We're then given two documents that were sent to the Pope in 1613 concerning the order's purge of anomalies in the area. The first reads... Your Holiness, Pope Paul V, we have traced the evil to Castle Jesualdo, verifying the Witchfinder's suspicions regarding the Prince of Venosa. An accursed yellow miasma corrupts flora and fauna alike, perverting the natural laws of God himself, sparing neither flora nor fauna nor even the artifice of man. The sky glows with the sickly colors of infected pus, while the land has taken on a form most terribly rotten. Monsters prowl the fields, demons whose shapes flicker and change before our very eyes. We have stood at the feet of giants, whose shadows stretch for miles. Blighted trees scream with the tongues of men and plead for the release of death. Buildings once familiar now display impossible geometry, transforming urban centers into inescapable labyrinths. Satan left his mark here. As it were, churches suffered the most grotesque transformations. Once, in order to escape a maze with no apparent exit, we tried to break down a wall, only to find the interior full of blood, sinew and lined with eyes. My words failed to capture what we encountered, but it was as if the distinctions between substances—animal and vegetable, mineral and artificial—were utterly blurred. Despite all these evils, the unending music proved our greatest foe. Those not dead, forming instruments from their bones and flesh. They dance and sing with such beauty. It will be merciful to slay them all. The second letter reads, Your Holiness, Pope Paul V. The Order triumphs through the grace of God, though our victory was not without considerable sacrifice. For of the two hundred sent to Campania, Only eleven of us return with our lives. We were not prepared to combat this form of devilry, and were forced to conscript from those few unpossessed. Verily, the Order itself has not encountered the Musica Diabolica since the Hamelin tragedy of 1284. Hundreds are dead. The rest have gone mad. We fought through the demons and possessed even as the land itself conspired against us. To survive the Musica Diabolica, we had no other choice but to deafen ourselves. Simply covering or plugging our ears was not enough. They had to be destroyed. Thus we cut off our ears and cauterized the bloody holes. It was a terrible sacrifice from which we will never recover. For weeks we laid siege on Jesualdo, the source of this chaos, and finally breached the castle yesterday. What we found within was beyond description. Despite the horrors we already endured, my men were immediately stricken. It was as if hell itself had been pulled into God's creation. Some lost consciousness, others took sick, while a few felt they had no choice but to fall on their swords. Those that remained in control of body and mind delved into the darkest reaches of the castle. There we confronted a terrible fiend and its demon altar. It swayed violently but ignored us, too enraptured by the musica diabolica. I knew this to be our only chance, and plunged my blade into the demon's blackened heart, ending its curse upon our land. Though it had a body like a serpent, and limbs numbering in the hundreds, I recognized what lay before us. The dark powers had changed him, but his familiar face remained. We feared the prince was slain, but I swear before God, this monster was the prince himself. We tried to burn the body, but it would not succumb to flame. Exhausted from battle, we conscripted the surviving peasants to use their tools to cleave where the flesh was soft, dismembering it piece by piece. After purifying the remains with holy water, we interred what we could in the fields, and left the rest for the rats. As for that horrid altar, we dared not look upon it, and instead chose to collapse the way With the aid of black powder, we brought ruin to the Mad Prince's sanctum. The castle still stands, but I would not blame you if you chose to raise it to the ground, and perhaps the town with it. Christendom must not know what transpired. Respectfully yours, in Christ, Urbano Fiorenzi, Grandmaster of the Unseen Order of St. Jude. So to recap, a militant order of knights serving the Roman church went on a crusade against the castle of Gesualdo, laying siege to it and its monstrosities for weeks. SCP-6624 was playing continuously, so the knights were forced to cut off their ears and cauterize the holes to deafen themselves, eventually fighting their way into the inner sanctum where they found a transformed Gesualdo enraptured by the music. After trying to burn him and failing, they got the locals to butcher him into pieces and scatter the remains in the field, ending by sealing away the musical device with black powder. Well, that all sounds completely awesome. The foundation has decided to cease all further testing of 6624. They also decided to check on Jesualdo's burial site in Naples, cracking it open to find only the bones of a pig. The lead researcher on the 6624 project, however, disagreed with the o5's decision to stop testing, and wrote a message to them. He says that 6624 has been his life's work, and he has now perfected his safety procedures so what happened in Gesualdo 400 years ago will not happen again. There's still so much that they don't understand about the instrument, as it must have some true purpose, a method to its madness. All their efforts and sacrifices will be rendered meaningless if they cannot solve this mystery. The o5s of course rarely change their minds just based on one short message so 0512 responds and says that 6624 has been deemed too unpredictable for further experiments. It presents no threat to normalcy as long as it remains secured and unused, and resuming studies to fulfill the doctor's curiosity is not worth the clear risk. They thank him for his years of research, and he and his team will be properly reassigned in the near future. It doesn't end here though. You may remember from earlier on that the Foundation had actually captured a number of the anomalous individuals that had been part of the cult, and were currently inactive. On December 30th, 1999, they became active, and breached containment through unknown means, appearing on video as if sinking through the floor of their containment unit before disappearing entirely. Seconds later, they reappeared at the provisional site built around 6624, hundreds of kilometers away. The site had minimal security, since the device was no longer being tested, and all 12 security personnel were killed within minutes. All relevant non-active MTFs in adjacent regions were ordered to converge on the site. Live surveillance footage showed the individuals being accompanied by a nude elderly male who appeared disoriented, possibly in a sleepwalking state. The anomalies manipulated the man into bypassing security parameters, as he was eventually identified as the former head researcher, Dr. Martinelli. The anomalies treated Martinelli with unusual deference frequently holding his hand or kneeling at his feet, and Martinelli's actions became increasingly involved, employing his knowledge of the site to deactivate all of the safety protocols. He was evidently cognizant, but his behavior was erratic, and included fits of laughter, dancing, singing, and crying. The anomalies proceeded to dismantle the automated plane system built onto the device reverting it to its original state. Reports and images of masked musicians and entertainers in the town were posted on Italian social media platforms, with locals under the impression that there was an impromptu new year's celebration going on, proceeding to join in. In response, the foundation initiated blackout protocols, disabling the region's power grid, By the time the MTFs arrived, there were hundreds of anomalous individuals throughout the town. Martinelli began displaying symptoms of disease, such as jaundiced skin and open sores, which themselves produced a black discharge. This unknown substance permeated throughout the entire chamber, moving seemingly by its own volition. Minutes later, he collapsed with his head beginning to swell and spasm, quickly growing to quadruple the size of his body. At midnight exactly, an entity erupted from his expanded cranium, nine meters long and resembling a centipede, with over eighty spindly humanoid arms and hands. The entity was primarily composed of a semi-viscous black substance, except for its cadaverous limbs, prominent yellow vertebra, and a number of pale, mask-like faces covering its bulkier front. The entity proceeded to crawl over to 6624 and began to play it. As the mtfs began to arrive, Anomalous music began to play throughout the town and neighboring communities as earth tremors and hysteria broke out. The anomalous individuals incited locals to assault foundation agents, and the agents were told to activate the noise-canceling setting on their headgear, although some were too slow and ended up joining the violent horde. Buildings were set on fire, and the streets were strewn with mutilated bodies as the mob turned on itself. Command authorized the use of deadly force in order to reach 6624, but the anomalies proved unusually resistant to bullets. By ten minutes after midnight, a number of other anomalies began to manifest with white tendrils erupting from the ground and yellow gas flooding the streets. A storm also appeared, unleashing strong winds and black rain. Artificial structures grew increasingly abstract as the impacted area severely deviated from earth's natural gravity, rendering navigation infeasible. Operatives managed to breach the provisional site at 22 minutes after midnight, but they suffered heavy casualties in the process, partly thanks to Martinelli having turned on the automatic defense systems beforehand. Reinforcements arrived several minutes later, but the town had been transformed so much that it was incomprehensible, and several helicopters crashed in the confusion. By 1230, Command had lost contact with all field operatives, and so they ordered the immediate destruction of 6624 by flooding the site with chlorine trifluoride, which would eliminate all organic material, including the human components of the device. Before the video feed ended, an unknown entity or force appeared in 6624's chamber, since classified as 6624-3. As the device began to rapidly deteriorate, the unknown entity continued to linger for several minutes, appearing to stare into the surveillance camera before dissipating. It's believed that the entity lacked, or had yet to fully achieve, a corporeal form. In the aftermath. The foundation had suffered 84 casualties, including 58 fatalities, with 23 survivors suffering permanent psychosis, necessitating total amnestization. The town itself returned to physical normalcy, but it's estimated over half of the population had been terminated, and those that remained were found to suffer psychosis similar to surviving operatives. The population was replaced by the foundation at a high cost, with the new residents having their memories altered to believe that they were lifelong residents of the area. Damage to the town was blamed on naturally occurring earthquakes, and the provisional site was deemed a complete loss and decommissioned. The current whereabouts of the anomalous individuals remains unknown. Dr. Martinelli's apartment in Naples was found to be in a state of disarray, with smashed windows and the walls covered in unusual graffiti. The graffiti included musical compositions bearing Gesualdo's special notations for 6624, as well as images of black stars, a crowned figure seated upon a throne, and what appeared to be a stereotypical jester impaled by a spear or stake his bedroom was found to contain a blackened body hanging from a noose, encircled by unidentified ritual symbols and melted candles. The heavily charred cadaver proved unusually brittle and began to break apart during removal. An autopsy was performed and revealed that the subject's interior organic tissue had been partially converted into a crumbling yellow substance resembling sulfur. No DNA sample could be retrieved, and despite the damage resembling that of acute radiation poisoning, no radiation could be detected. The wall facing the cadaver had been inscribed with a message, scrawled boldly over layers of composition. Translated from Italian, it reads, Woe betide those who would silence our rapture. The choir must sing and eternal dream of lost Alagada. So the forces that rule Alagada seem to be making regular attempts to connect our world with theirs for reasons that are not entirely clear. Again I can't help but note the similarities between this scp and the king in yellow, a major inspiration for the hanged kings mythos in the scp universe. In the Cthulhu mythos, Hastur is a great old one that rules over the mysterious and mythical city of Carcosa, located somewhere near Aldebaran. Hastur is not as hands-on as, say, Cthulhu, but instead influences people on earth from afar, particularly those gifted in the arts, primarily through the use of symbols, such as the yellow sign. Those influenced by Haster, also called the king in yellow, will create great and enigmatic works of art based around Haster and Carcosa, such as the maddening play itself, the king in yellow. These influences on scp 6624 are pretty clear, but the hanged king is ultimately a more mysterious and tragic figure than Haster. Although In James Blish's short story, More Light, where he writes out a full version of the King in Yellow play, the King in Yellow rules in the city of Hastur because he's been exiled from Aldebaran. I think I'm just rambling at this point, so to conclude, the foundation is going to have to continue to be vigilant if the Hanged King, or at least the Ambassador and the Yellow Lord, have their sights set on earth.